open up your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the last few verses of Acts chapter 4, and then we're going to get into the fifth chapter. Today's lesson is entitled, Sin from Within. Don't worry about writing everything, because everything I say, you'll get in the notes. Okay, so just listen. You don't have to scratch down anything unless I say this isn't in the notes, and you can put it down, okay? We have a two-part outline. We're going to be looking at sharing in the church. That's the good news. And then we'll get to the bad news, which is sinning in the church. Uh-oh. Sharing in the church and sinning in the church. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father God, we do, we do come before your presence as needy people. We are a needy people but you are a sovereign, all-sufficient, El Shaddai God. We love you and we praise you and we thank you that we know that you are the winner. You are victorious and we know how everything will end, but as we're in the midst of it, it is, it is really frightening. And at the same time, it is really exciting to know that we are people privileged to live as we see your word being carried out, prophecy in the, in the fulfilling but we do, Lord, pray for our men and women um, on the front lines. We pray for your protection over them, Lord. We pray that you would confound the enemy, that we would be a sanctified people so that our enemy could be destroyed. Um, and we, we just pray, Lord, for this land, that people, because of the seriousness of the times, that people everywhere in this country would turn back to you. We know we have been disobedient. We know that... Um, we have really fallen far short of what we should be, how we started as a nation. So we ask for your forgiveness. And it starts with the church, those who are called by your name. If we would humble ourselves and pray and seek your face, that you would hear us and heal our land. And we need healing in this land, Lord. Help the people of your church just get on fire for you. And be like the early church, proclaiming the word of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, to all we come into contact with. Help us truly to be salt and light in these dark, insipid times. Now, I ask that you would help us to focus on what you have to say to us in this serious lesson this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To this point in our look at the life of the early church, we have seen her in all of her pristine beauty. She has had her first encounter with persecution from without, from the religious rulers, but she emerged victorious from that experience. She was more determined, she was more passionate, she was more united in her desire to proclaim Christ than even before the persecution. Now, uh, I forgot to read the passage, so let's look at Acts 4, verses 32. I'm going to back up to 32, even though this lesson is from 34 to 37, um, Acts 5, 11. But let's go back to Acts 4, 32 and read through the end of the chapter, just for a little bit of review here. It says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. Nobody said, this is mine. But they had all things common. Verse 33, and with great power, that's mega, the Greek word mega power, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and mega grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. 
And Joseph, who by, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, the Acts 4.32, we read that a multitude of believers, now the number has increased to the point where it's beyond counting. It started with 120, right, in the upper room. Then it jumped up to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. And then after one of Peter's sermons, the men in the church were 5,000. So if you include women and children, probably 15,000, 20,000 in the church. And now it's a multitude. They can't count it anymore. And ever since, nobody knows the number of people in the church. Um, but it says that they were of one heart and of one soul in the sharing of their possessions. No one who came to Christ in faith went without his or her needs being met. Because there was just a generous giving spirit that permeated the entire body of believers. Isn't that wonderful? It's just wonderful. Those who owned land or houses... Uh, would willingly, that's the key word, they willingly sold their property to contribute to the welfare of those brothers and sisters in Christ who were in need. Now, unlike communism or socialism, which is forced by a government mandate declaring you have to share, no private property, what you have, you have to share, you know, communal property, Contrary to that, the charity of the Christians here was completely voluntary. It was the result of God's grace and the result of God's love abounding in their hearts that they gladly said, I want to share. I want to share. Nobody was saying, mine. That's mine. <laughs> like your grandchildren. Oh. Mine. Oh, my goodness. They, they had the right view of money, and they had the right view of possessions. They understood that everything belongs to who? The cattle on a thousand hills? Everything belongs to God, and that they were merely to be his stewards, responsible for using it wisely for the expansion of his kingdom, and as a demonstration of their love one for another. Now, as we discussed back in Lesson 4, which was called A Meaningful Day, and it was about you know, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, there were <clears throat> many Jews, Jewish people, who had traveled to the Holy City, to Jerusalem, to celebrate the four spring feasts, which were Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits. So those all came, bing, 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 right in a row. And then 50 days later, was there, there was the Feast of Pentecost. They came from all over the diaspora. Remember, we learned that on the day of Pentecost, there were some 3,000 devout Jews from all kinds of different nations speaking different languages that were added to the church. Lots of those people decided to remain in Jerusalem. Instead of going back to their homelands after the spring feast, they stayed there in the city. Why? Well, because they wanted to be discipled in their new faith before they went back to their homeland and spread the news about the gospel and, and Christ. So they, they wanted to sit under apostolic teaching, so they stayed in the city. So what this meant was a loss of income, because they weren't back home, you know, working in their jobs. 
and likely too some of the Jerusalem Jewish believers had been dismissed from their jobs because of their faith in Christ. Remember when Jesus was still alive, the Sanhedrin council had put out a threat that anybody who became a follower of Jesus would be put out of the synagogue. That's what they did with that man who had been born blind. They put him out of the synagogue. If you were put out of the synagogue, you couldn't have employment. So the church, you know, this new church was in, had needs. They had serious needs. In verse 35, we learn how it was that the members, therefore, were taking care of one another with what we could call a benevolent fund. I don't know if they called it that, but that's what we would probably call it today, a benevolent fund. When a believer sold something, he willingly, his willing donation from that sale, and the percentage was totally up to him, whatever percentage he wanted to give of whatever he sold, was placed into the care of the apostles to appropriately distribute wherever it was needed. <clears throat> Everyone was chipping in to do their part. They all selflessly were taking care of one another. This genuine demonstration of their love served as yet another reason why the church was growing. People on the outside were looking at their love that they had for one another, and they were saying, wow, that is really unique. That is really special. I want to become part of that. Remember, Jesus had said to them, <clears throat> by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Each was esteeming others better than himself, as it says in Philippians 2. They were not looking at their own things, but on the things of others. What a wonderful spirit. Everybody was caring for one another. There were two primary characteristics of the early church that caused her to grow and caused her to have such an attractive unity to the outside world. Number one, the preoccupation of the people with one another. And number two, their passion for taking the gospel to others. They were busy, busily and joyously occupied with exactly the two priorities that Jesus had given to them, which we could say in a nutshell were get together. Remember how many time, times he prayed for them to be one as he was one with the Father and the Father was one with him and he said, and I want them to be one with me and you, Father, and that they would all be one. Over and over again, he prayed that in John 17. So basically, in a nutshell, he said, get together and uh, reach the world. That's it. You know, that's, our, that's what we should be doing as a church, getting together and reaching the world. Pretty simple, isn't it? Why can't we do it? <laughs> Even when persecution entered the picture via the religious rulers <clears throat> who gave their threatening commands to neither teach nor speak anymore at all in the name of Jesus, the Christians proved to be more than conquerors, didn't they? They were not frightened into silence for fear of being de-synagogued or for fear of losing their employment, or even for fear of being killed. The result was that Peter and John had not only been given that wonderful opportunity to present the gospel to the entire Supreme Court of Israel, I mean, how else could that have happened except via persecution, but, um, uh, and, and those guys just sat there totally stunned, I mean, and, and impotent and embarrassed, by two, two common Galilean fishermen and one former beggar. But then the whole company of believers, when uh, they heard the report from Peter and John, they were so united 
in prayer that, you know, they just spontaneously broke into prayer in one voice, and it was a prayer that pleased God so much that he responded with an amen that literally shook the, the prayer meeting hall, right? That was exciting. And gave them, he gave them a fresh filling of the Spirit so that they had renewed zeal and increased boldness to go out and do exactly what the council told them not to do. They went out and proclaimed, you know, taught and spoke in the name of Jesus Christ. So the council's plan totally backfired. But Satan does not easily give up. He has lots of weapons in his arsenal. He has methods of spiritual warfare other than persecution that had, been, that had proven very effective against Israel. And now he was going to use some of those weapons to attempt to disrupt and hinder not only the unity of the church, the oneness of the church, but the growth of the church and the mission work of the church. Satan hates Jesus, so you know he hates his body, the church. There are a lot of firsts, F-I-R-S-T-S. There's a lot of firsts in the book of Acts, but our look at today's first is probably the saddest one of all. It is the first recorded serious intrusion of sin from within. The account of Ananias and Sapphira, is, which is what we'll be looking at today, is not about the sin of unbelievers outside the church who attack the church. That's what we had last week in the persecution of the religious rulers. Nor is the account of Ananias and Sapphira about the sin of unbelievers inside the church, which we call tares. Not about that either. It is the account of Ananias and Sapphira is the deadly, and I use it as a pun, the deadly serious account of deception from believers, believers within the actual body of Christ, within the church, believers within the church. Satan set about to infiltrate the pristine beauty of the brand new church with his whispered lies, just as once upon a time he had infiltrated the pristine beauty of a garden called Eden. However, before we begin our look at the first recorded occasion of moral disruption in the church, we find in the last two verses of chapter 4 the account of a very good thing, a very good thing, but one that Satan took and cleverly twisted and used as a catalyst for the inspiration behind the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Satan is very good at taking good things and counterfeiting them. All right, now the good thing had to do with the generous giving of a man named Joseph, it says in the King James, which is actually Joseph. His real name was Joseph, but he was given a nickname by the apostles. And that nickname was what? Barnabas, which means son of consolation or son of encouragement. Speaking of firsts, this is our first introduction to this godly man who becomes even more prominent as you progress through the book of Acts. 
And as we do that, as we progress through Acts, we come to find out why he was given this nickname by the apostles. He was truly a man who had the gift of encouragement. If you have the gift of encouragement, that is so wonderful. People need that gift, so be using it. Encourage others. That was Barnabas. He was an encourager. He was the man who took Paul to meet the apostles. Now, everybody in the, in the beginning was leery of Paul because his name used to be Saul of Tarsus, and he had been wrecking havoc on the church. So, you know, Saul, you got to be kidding. He's a Christian. Well, we, we need to vet him a little bit first. But Barnabas took Paul and introduced him to the apostles. He also became Paul's companion during his first missionary journey. Barnabas was not a native of Israel. Interesting. He was one of the Jews from the diaspora. Where was his homeland? It says there in the scripture. Cyprus. He was from the island of Cyprus. <clears throat> and he was a descendant of the priestly tribe of Levi. Now, if he was a firstborn son, that would have meant he was a priest. I don't know if he was the firstborn son. But we could have here a priest who got saved and wasn't needed as a priest anymore. <laughs> so he became an evangelist with Paul. And think of that, Paul. Paul used to be a Pharisee. So on that first missionary journey, you could have had a priest and a Pharisee, former. Isn't that exciting? Um, he may have been. He was living in Jerusalem at this time, obviously. Here he is in Jerusalem. Barnabas I'm talking about. Um, but his native land was Cyprus. He was in Jerusalem now. He may have been one of the original 120 believers who frequently were meeting in the upper room. Because the upper room was owned, the house in which the upper room was located was owned by Barnabas' sister. And her name was Mary. Another Mary to throw in. <laughs> Lots of Marys. It's so confusing. But Barnabas had a sister named Mary. Now Mary had a son named John Mark. John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. So Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. Doesn't this get to be fun? <laughs> so Luke had just described, in verses 32 to 35, Luke had described the daily life of the church and the wonderful way that the people were providing for one another. So next, in verses 36 and 37, he gives a, a specific example of the type of sharing that he was talking about. Perhaps... And, and that was the sharing of Barnabas. Now, perhaps Barnabas was singled out. I mean, lots of people were selling things and giving the money to the church. But Barnabas may have been singled out here because people knew him, for one thing, but because his giving was perhaps comparable to that of the widow in the temple. Remember the widow woman in the temple in Luke chapter 21 who only gave two mites, but it was all she had. And, you know, she was very humble about it, but she, it was all out giving for her because she had nothing left. That's what you call sacrificial giving. And she was in the temple, and she put in those little two night, uh, mites in those big brass um, trumpet-shaped receptacles that they had in the court of the women. And she, you know, nobody noticed her except Jesus. He was in there. 
after a very rough day. That was on Tuesday of the Passion Week, the busiest recorded day in the Lord's whole earthly ministry. It had been a very rough day for him. He had had one confrontation after another with the religious rulers, and he was worn out, and he was there in the temple, maybe leaning up in a corner, and he saw nothing passes his eyes, does it? He saw that widow woman put those two mites in. And because he noticed her, she has become forever an example to us of humble, sacrificial giving. And she really encouraged the heart of the Lord at that time, didn't she? He needed that. He needed to see someone who was sold out for the Lord. So that encouraged him. Well, I think what happened now is that when Barnabas sold his land, which was probably over in Cyprus, he sold some land he had in Cyprus, which was literally a field in the, in the Greek, and he brought the money that he received from the sale and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I think that there was something about the quiet sincerity of his all-out giving that caught the attention of those who now had eyes perceptive to see things just like Jesus. These guys had been taught well by their master. They were there when he pointed out the widow woman. So now their perceptive eyes notice Barnabas's giving. As the widow's all-out giving had been a source of encouragement to the Lord after a very long and difficult day, I think that Barnabas's all-out humble sacrificial giving was a source of encouragement to those in the church, the body of Christ. Furthermore, because of the fact that the incident of Barnabas's charitable contribution is used purposely by the Holy Spirit using Luke as a contrast to the hypocritical giving that follows in chapter 5, I think we can say that we therefore know that Barnabas's giving was honest it was sincere, and it was righteous. As with the widow, he did not give in order to be noticed. He maybe didn't want any, you know, just put it there at the apostles' feet. Now, I think that's just an expression. I don't think they actually put it at their feet, but I, he just gave it and didn't want any recognition for it. However, there was another man in the church who did want to be noticed, and unfortunately, that man named Ananias put an ear, put an ear to the whispered voice of Satan to deceptively imitate what Barnabas had done. We could really say that the passage of today's study is the tale of two men, Barnabas and Ananias. Now, if we were just studying Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, we would probably call it the, the tale of a man and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira. But since we're including what preceded it, which I think is very important to put Barnabas with Ananias for the contrast, it's a tale of two men. Both were believers. Both outwardly did the same thing. They both sold land and brought money from the sale and laid it at the apostles' feet. I don't think it's a coincidence that it says that about Barnabas in verse 37 and that it also says that about Ananias in chapter 5, verse 2 laid it at the apostles' feet, purposely to show us the comparison and the contrast. However, <clears throat> there was, they're both believers, they both did the same thing, but there was a grave, grave, serious distinction. And the clue for that distinction comes in the first word of chapter 5. You know, after reading about the wonderful generosity of the church in general, and then the gracious, specific giving of Barnabas, we come to the first word of chapter 5, and what is it? 
But, uh-oh, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife. That's going to tell us about a big difference. And there was, because one man went on to become a companion of the Apostle Paul and one of the great leaders of the early church. The other man could have, too. He could have. But instead, the other man was cut off in the prime of his life, and he took his wife with him. And God intends for us to notice this contrast and to learn from it. So I hope that's what we'll do. Let's look now at the sinning in the church, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, here's another but, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. He died. And this is an understatement. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. That'll put fear of God in the church, won't it? Verse 6, and the young men arose, wound him up. Now, did you notice that? How did they wrap the bodies for burial? Remember we talked about Jesus being wrapped in the strips, burial strips? Well, that's what they did. They, they wound him up. And that doesn't mean like a top, you know. <laughs> and they carried him out and buried him. They would bury people the very same day that they died. So there he was in the earth. And, verse 7, it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Mm. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me what, whether ye sold the land for so much. And he would have given her the amount that had been put at his feet. And she said, Yea, for so much. Big mistake, Sapphira. Then Peter said unto her, How is it? that ye have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her buried and carrying her forth buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. That means not only fear in the church, but fear outside the church when they heard about what happened. People would think twice before they joined that church, right? <laughs> well, the name Ananias and the name Sapphira are interesting because the name Ananias in Hebrew means God is gracious or gracious. The name Sapphira, what do you think of when you hear Sapphira? You think of a stone, right? Sapphire. Her name means beautiful. She was drop-dead beautiful. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Um, the irony of their names is that what they did was neither gracious nor beautiful. What they did was deceitful and ugly. 
As we said, to this point, the church had been advancing in tremendous victory and had even triumphed in the face of persecution. What Satan does, uh, when Satan doesn't succeed, you know, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he has other costumes that he can masquerade in, right? So he hadn't succeeded as a roaring lion with the religious rulers. So he's going to strike again, this time as the deceiving serpent. He'd been pretty successful with that in Eden, hadn't he? He can also come as an angel of light. He's got many, many costumes. And the church, the church must always be alert and prepared for all such attacks. Many have noted, and this is interesting, I think this might be one of your contrast questions. No, is it or isn't? I can't remember in your homework. Well, you can look and tell me. But many have uh, noted that the record of Ananias and Sapphira is to the book of Acts what the account of Achan is to the book of Joshua and Israel. Remember the account of Achan? Now, Joshua and the Israelites had just conquered the first fruit of the promised land, Jericho. The walls came a-tumbling down. They were victorious, and they were, you know, in, in the middle of victory. And God said, sanctify yourselves and don't take anything from that accursed city of Jericho. The only one who escaped was Rahab and her family, right? Don't take anything. But Achan coveted in his heart some of the gold and silver and other things that he saw there, and he took it and he buried it in a hole in the ground in his tent. Well, God said... You, you must be sanctified if you're going to conquer your enemies. But you have taken of the accursed thing. Somebody, you know, he knew who it was. And so they searched and they found it in Achan's tent. And he was put to death. But it was interesting what God said. He said, you cannot stand against your enemies if you take away with you that accursed thing. And I couldn't help but thinking, think of our, our, nation, our church in America and our, and our country. We need to sanctify ourselves if we're going to conquer our enemy and we have an enemy we need to sanctify ourselves we need to put away all the accursed things that we have accumulated and collected we need to turn back to God basically don't we yes that's it in a nutshell now so they've compared you know because both accounts Ananias and Sapphira regarding the new you know church and Achan regarding coming into the promised land both accounts are about deceitful people within the camp who disrupted the victorious progress of God's people well what exactly was it that Ananias and Sapphira did that caused God to remove them physically from this world what was it were they struck dead because they did not contribute charitably to the church? Is that why? No, not at all, because they did contribute charitably, probably very generously to the church. Was this couple punished because they did not give everything from the sale of their land to the church? No, that wasn't the reason either. That's exactly what Peter addresses with Ananias in verse 4. Um, he says, you know, Ananias, while you owned your property, you could do with it whatever you wanted. It was your property. You could do with it what you wanted. And when you sold it, you could also do with the proceeds whatever you wanted, whatever you choose. It was completely up to their 
Ananias and Sapphira's discretion. If they decided to only give one-tenth of what they received from the sale of that land to the church fund, that was perfectly okay, wasn't it? If that's what they decided to do. If they didn't give anything to the church, that was their choice. The giving of the body for the needs of the body was all completely voluntary. Voluntary, as it is yet today. Nobody was constraining any Christian to give all or to give a certain portion. I mean, God wants it, you know, it doesn't, he doesn't need it. And he doesn't want it if it doesn't come from a cheerful heart, right? So it's completely voluntary. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was their premeditated pretense that part was all. They were purposely complicit in an arrangement of deceit, one that outwardly would cause everyone to think that they were just as all-out giving as Barnabas had been when they weren't. So they had agreed to pretend that they gave every single bit of the money from their sale of that field so that they could gain the spiritual prestige that they coveted. This was all about spiritual pride. And then they also wanted to keep some of the cash, didn't they? Which was their prerogative. If they had just been honest about it, it would have been no problem. They were hypocrites. And hypocrites are liars because they say one thing and they do another. Now, all of us, in some degree or another, are hypocrites. Every one of us. But they were purposely deceptive to not only the leaders of the church and the church body, but to God, more seriously to God. They were purposely hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite, but I don't really want to be, you know. <laughs> now, can you imagine the shock on Ananias' face when he brought in probably a rather substantial amount of money? I'm sure as he was going carrying his pot of gold or whatever, he was expecting to see a lot of smiles on people's faces and to hear some words of praise and, you know, pats on the back and accolades and all that. Maybe they'd even put up a wall with his name on it, you know, a little plaque. <laughs> that's what he was expecting so can you imagine it was like a bolt of lightning straight to his heart when he heard these words from Peter and Peter's frown as he sang them Ananias why hath Satan hey you know what Peter had heard those words from the lips of the Lord <laughs> hadn't he how did it go Satan has desired, no, oh, yeah, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but then he said also, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. Imagine the shock when Peter heard that. Well, now he's doing this to Ananias. Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whew. What a shock. Sure, Ananias was like, how did he know? Now, we mentioned this already, but did you hear Peter, state where the lie to the Holy Spirit began. Where did the lie begin? The source was Satan. Satan was the source of the lie. However, that initially satanically inspired suggestion soon completely preoccupied Ananias' heart. The origin of the deception began with Satan. 
But then that seed took root in Ananias' heart. It says it filled him. It filled his heart. So do you know what that tells us as believers? It tells us something that we should all be really well aware of. It tells us that believers, even believers, are susceptible to the suggestions of Satan. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And do you know who Peter wrote that, those words to? Christians. He does desire to sift us like wheat. Jesus spoke that to Peter, who was a believer. Uh, he wa- you know, now that he's lost our souls for all of eternity, he wants to destroy our testimony for Christ so that we cannot reach anybody else's soul. This means that not all of our own thoughts are, I mean, not all of our thoughts are our own. When you have a little idea or something pop into your head, that may not be (laughs) from you. (laughs) That may be, number one, it could be your flesh speaking to you. We hope that it's the Holy Spirit, that the idea is from the Holy Spirit, but it also could be, the source could be Satan. Um... And how, do, how can we know? How can we know the difference? How can we know if an idea or something that pops in our head is from the devil? Well, I'm going to give you a real easy way to, to determine that. It will always, always have the element of a lie or deception in it. Satan is the father of lies. The first words, remember the first words he ever spoke to mankind? They had deception in them and a lie. When he said to Eve, yea, hath God said, he was being deceptive, wasn't he? Trying to get her to doubt God's word. And she fell for it. She was deceived. And then what were the next words he said? From Satan, the very next words, ye shall not surely die. Big, fat lie. So the source of the lie was Satan. But Peter's words at the end of verse 4 put the fault for listening to Satan on Ananias himself. Peter asked Ananias, why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Peter was telling him that he could have resisted the temptation and therefore, you know, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. But he didn't resist the devil, and he therefore was responsible for the conception of that satanic suggestion in his own heart. But he didn't just keep that suggestion in his own heart. What did he do with it? He shared it. And what does that remind you of? It reminds me of Eve sharing (laughs) with her husband. Here, Adam, partake of, of the fruit. And that's what... Ananias does. It says that Sapphira was made privy to it. She was a part of it. And underlying the lie and the deception, of course, was pride. And Satan is definitely very good with that. Pride, isn't he? And he knows how to stoke our pride. They wanted to make others think that they were just as spiritual as Barnabas. They wanted to bask in the limelight. They wanted a pew with their name on it. Ananias and Sapphira had both 
seem to forget something very important. They seem to have forgotten that God is omniscient. What does that mean? He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Ooh, that's a scary thought. That was said by Lewis Berry Schaefer. Their plan was a pretense. It was a lie. And the lie was to who? The lie was to God. It says to the Holy Spirit, and then it says to God. So the Holy Spirit is God, right? The lie was to God. Oliver Wendell Holmes said this. He says, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. Very good. That'll be in your notes. A lie is always serious sin. Uh, but it becomes more serious, and I'll explain this. A lie is always serious, but it becomes more serious in proportion to the integrity of the one to whom it is spoken. For example, the lie of one drug dealer to another drug dealer, one criminal to another, is proportionately not as serious. They probably expect that from each other. It's not as serious as the lie of a criminal under oath to a judge and a jury. The lie of a saved person to another saved person is proportionately greater than the lies that the unsaved say to one another. However, the lie of a saved person to not only a leader of the church, but to God, the Holy Spirit, that's the worst lie of all, isn't it? And by the way, the fact that Ananias, I'm answering one of your questions, the fact that Ananias and Sapphira were able to lie to the Spirit, as it says in verse 3, and tempt the Spirit, as it says in verse 5, indicates that they had the Spirit of God living within them. Okay? That means they were believers. And an unbeliever doesn't lie to the Spirit and tempt the Spirit because the Spirit is not within him. They were true believers. Which is good news, really, because the minute they dropped dead, of course, they were present with the Lord. So that's, that's the good news. Well, you can just imagine the look on Ananias' face as Peter's word of knowledge about his deception struck home. But he didn't have very long to think about it. He didn't have very long to stay shocked, did he? Or to even feel convicted because he fell down on the spot and died. Can you imagine how awful it would be for the very last words that you ever heard on this earth to be, you have lied to God. And the next minute you're face to face with God. I don't want to face him ashamed, do you? Satan had lied to Ananias and he had lied through Ananias. Now who was it who told Peter these things about Ananias' deception? Who told Peter? Was Peter omniscient? No, 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 no. The risen Christ, the resurrected Christ, gave Peter this instantaneous gift of discernment and insight in this matter. Um, it was the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, living in, you know, inside of him and filling him. He was speaking for God here. It's important, very, I can't stress this enough, it is very important for spiritual leaders of the church to be right with the Lord, so that they have spiritual discernment, as Peter had in this situation. 
Think of what would have happened otherwise if Peter didn't have spiritual discernment and said, oh, wow, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. You guys can become uh, Ananias. You can become an elder in the church, a deacon or whatever, you know, and we'll, we'll just make you part of the church. What could have happened? They may have become very influential people in the, in the early church, and Satan could have continued working through them to bring even more corruption and pride and deception into the church. Men and women just like these two, men and women like them, have brought destruction to many, many local churches throughout the ages, haven't they? Because of lack of discernment in the leaders of the church. Now, did you notice that Peter never said anything to Ananias about his impending death? Now, he does later with Sapphira. He says, behold, the men that buried your husband, they're coming, you know, see their feet? Here they come. He gave her a little bit of warning, but he never said anything to Ananias about his impending death. Likely, nobody was as surprised at what happened when Ananias fell down at his feet as Peter himself. I don't think Peter was expecting that. I mean, it never happened like that before, right? <laughs> his sudden death was an act of God. The Holy Spirit. It was not, please make sure I understand, it was not Peter, not the power of Peter, calling, you know, the head of the church, calling down a curse on someone. Actually, the Spirit here did something that the Lord Jesus himself never did while he walked earth. The Lord Jesus never struck down anyone dead in judgment. Never. Now, he did strike something down in judgment, but it wasn't a person. What was it? withered up that very same day. The fig tree, fig tree, fig tree, right. Well, in Acts 5-9, three hours after Ananias had, had died and was subsequent, subsequently wound, carried out, and buried, Sapphira comes to the meeting place, wherever that was, probably the upper room. Now, you can imagine her at home waiting and waiting and waiting and then what is taking him so long? He hasn't called, he hasn't called, yet. where in the world is he? <laughs> Ananias hadn't returned, and she wanted a full report. She wanted to know, oh, what, you know, how many slaps on the back, and da-da-da, what happened? Uh, but he hadn't come back, she didn't know why. And so she was a woman, so she's curious. She finally, three hours is long enough, and so finally she heads out to go find out where he is. And uh, I wonder if on the way she passed by a cemetery, I wonder, I wonder you know, who, who just got buried? <laughs> That's my sanctified imagination. But anyway, when she got there, I wonder why she didn't notice all the, uh, the strange way that people weren't exactly looking her in the eyes and everybody kind of had their head down and there was sort of a tension in the air. Do you think she might have picked up on some of that? I wonder why when she got there she didn't ask Peter where her husband was. I'm sure she looked around, she you know, would wonder where is he. But she didn't, she didn't ask where he was and just think of poor Peter. Oh, Poor Peter, and the task that he knew was before him. He had, I don't think he knew that Ananias was going to die, but now he would very well suspect that Sapphira would likewise drop dead if she carried on um, with the deception, you know, if she would, and that she would share her husband's fate. And he had had three hours to think about this. Peter had three hours to pray about how he would speak to her when she finally showed up. Now the plan, remember, the plan had not been conceived by her. It had, it had been 
conceived in her husband's heart. You know, he listened to Satan, and then the seed took root and filled him. Uh, So perhaps Peter is thinking, well, she submitted to her husband. She just went along with him, because we've been teaching on how wives should submit to their husbands. So she went along with him. So he's going to give her the chance that he did not give to Ananias. He's going to give her an opportunity to repent. Um, So he asks her. He asks her a question. Tell me whether you sold the land for so, so much. You know, and then he gave the amount. Now, she should have told the truth right then and there, shouldn't she? She should have told the truth. One of the ladies yesterday suggested that maybe she did not tell the truth because if she told the truth, that would mean everybody would know her husband was a liar and she didn't know her husband was dead. So that's giving her the benefit of the doubt, isn't it? But nonetheless, she lied. She lied. She should have really, she should have said, no, we did not sell the field for that, or the land for that much. Uh, We actually got more, but we decided to keep some of it. Now, that would have been honest, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And she, if she had said that, she would have saved her life. As I said before, they were not obligated at all to give all the money to the church. They were merely obligated to be honest, and not to lie to the Spirit of the Lord. But Sapphira said yes to the false amount of the sale, and it spelled her doom. And Peter said to her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. And immediately she too fell dead at Peter's feet, and she was promptly buried next to her husband by the same men who had wound him up and buried him earlier in the day. That's a sad story, isn't it? That's a really sad story. Now, here is a serious question that I want to ask you as women. As women. Is it always the will of God that you in submission to your husband, and if you're not married, never been married, you maybe want to think in terms of your father or some male guardian in your life, that is it always the will of God that you go along with everything he says to do or everything he does? Is it? No, the answer is absolutely not. The drop-dead beautiful Sapphira (laughs) made a tragic and a fatal decision when she agreed to go along with her husband. She should have firmly told him that she could not agree to participate in such deception. She should have wisely and calmly pointed his thoughts to the truth of Scripture and the righteousness of Christ and the teaching that they had been hearing from the apostles. There is a point where submission stops, and that point is when something comes into direct conflict with the word of God, the laws of the land, unless they conflict with God, and the character of God. Jesus is the truth, right? The spirit is the spirit of truth. The Bible is the word of truth. So Sapphira would have saved her life and perhaps even saved her husband's life. If originally, you know, when he shared that idea with her, if she had said, no, I cannot do that. I cannot lie to our church. I cannot lie to our fellow man. And worst of all, I cannot lie to God. We had just 
discussed last week. It's interesting that this follows on the tales of what we, tale of what we talked about last week. We talked about the issue of obeying God, the higher authority, rather than men when, when the two come into conflict. <clears throat> Peter and John had been told by the Sanhedrin council that they were obligated, or they told the Sanhedrin that they were ob- obligated to obey God instead of man because man wanted them to, you know, be silent, neither teach nor speak in the name of Jesus. And they said, we cannot do that because we've been commanded and we've been commissioned to speak for Jesus. And this is likewise true even when the man who is involved happens to be a father or happens to be a husband and he is asking or telling us to do something that clearly conflicts with God's will. Now, don't don't have too much fun with this, okay? Don't take this and run with this <laughs> because I'm not talking about a matter, a matter of personal opinion. You know, well, I want the house to be painted white and he wants it green. You know, I, I'm not talking about something personal. Uh, so don't take this and run wild with it and go home and tell your husband, my, my teacher said you, I could disobey you, please. <laughs> Uh, however, you know, if, if they do want us to do something that's clearly against the will of God, the word of God, the character of God, or the laws of man, um, then our protest should be how? In a quiet and gentle spirit, a loving spirit. Now, if violence happens to be his response, if violence is his response, you need to protect yourself. You need to remove yourself from that situation. I'm not saying divorce, but you just need to get out of the home and separate yourself for your own safety. All right, well, throughout the inspired account of God's dealings with man, we find that, this is interesting, that at the beginning of something new in God's overall program for redemption, that that it has been characterized with some sudden act of judgment against those who fail to understand the need for purity in those who represent him. Acts of judgment like this have occurred whenever there was something new in God's redemptive program. He was telling everyone, I'm serious about obeying me, and I am serious about my purity and the purity of my people. You know, after the tabernacle was established, first time, you know, we could call the tabernacle sort of, you know, stretching it, but we could call it kind of like the Old Testament church. After it was established, God struck dead two men, Nadab and Abihu. Why? Well, because they went into the tabernacle and tried to offer false fire to the Lord. And then, and that's in Leviticus 10, we've already discussed Achan in Joshua chapter 7. He was put to death for disobedience to God right after God brought the Israelites into the promised land. The beginning of a new thing. Uh, and that was to serve as a serious warning to his people of the seriousness of purity in the camp and the warnings against hypocrisy. So that's what he's doing again here at the beginning of the church. Uh, this time it's to tell the church that he's holy, reminding them he is holy, and he wants his body to be holy. Now, he'll be gracious, God will be gracious, and he will be very merciful about a lot of things. You can even get angry with God, and you can talk to him and tell him your heart. Well, I really don't like the way you did that. God, why did you strike my whole family dead? 
and put boils all over me. I mean, remember Job talking to the Lord? And what about Jonah? Are you kidding me, God? You want me to go to Nineveh and witness to those sorry Assyrians? you got to be kidding. You know, God doesn't mind when we're honest with him. But what he hates, what he hates is to be lied to. He hates hypocrisy. Remember the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke to anybody were against the scribes and Pharisees, and what was it about? It was about their hypocrisy. You hypocrites. He does not want hypocrisy now creeping into his church. So by an example, he shows the church with the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. <clears throat> so with the death of Ananias and then three hours later, the death of his wife Sapphira, who had likewise lied about the matter, not knowing her husband was dead, we have the same thing that he had done with Israel. He's showing the church, how serious is her purity. This man and his wife would have spoiled the unity of mind and heart of the early church. And all it takes is a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. Their deaths were God's warning, not only to the church, but to those outside the church, unbelievers, about how seriously he takes the church he is very, very serious about the church. She was bought with the blood of his dearly beloved son. And she is too priceless a thing for people to take her lightly. Do people take the church lightly today? Unfortunately, they do. The first attack of Satan from within the, the church, the body of Christ, Christ was completely in keeping with his character from the very beginning when he entered into Eden. Ananias and Sapphira, just like Adam and Eve, had eaten of the forbidden fruit. They thought that they could get away from the eyes of an all-knowing God and not surely die. But they were wrong, weren't they? Why did he do it? Well, he did it to create a fear, a reverence for his holiness. Notice twice it says great fear in verse 5 and verse 11. There were three things the early church had that were very good she had. She had great power and great grace, verse 33 of chapter 4, and now she has great fear, great reverential fear for the Lord. That, that, that's a healthy fear that the church should possess. Now, here's my last question, and we'll close. Why doesn't God do this anymore? Well, I'm glad he doesn't. <laughs> but does he? Are we so sure he doesn't? Maybe not with people actually dropping dead in the church. But who are we to say that God isn't doing this yet today? And quite frequently. You see, I think that if we would understand what 2 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 31, there's also another passage over in 1 John, but I think if we would understand what Paul, the inspired Paul, was writing in 1 Corinthians 11, maybe we would realize that God is doing this all the time. Paul said that because of hypocrisy at the Lord's table, Many of you, and he was speaking to Christians, many of you are weak 
and sickly, and many sleep. Now, the word sleep means are, have died. Sleep is only used in reference to believers. So he says, because people will come and partake of the Lord's table unworthily, because there's known sin in their lives, and they know it, and they have not confessed it, many, he says, many of you are weak and um, sickly, and many have actually died. How many cases of Ananias and Sapphira's are there? Well, we don't know. We don't know because it's not recorded in the word of God like their case was, right? And we are not to judge because we don't know the heart. Only God does. We can't judge if somebody's weak or sickly or if somebody's died, that is because they, you know, sinned against God. We cannot judge that, all right? All we can do, all I can do is make sure I know about myself, and you must make sure that you know about yourself. The Lord has his ways of purging his body of hypocrisy. And this passage is here. This passage is here in the pattern of the first generation of the church. Remember, we're being given a pattern that is going to continue throughout the church age? This is part of the pattern. And it's likely to tell us that this does go on continuously. It's to create in us a sense of awe and seriousness toward the holiness and toward the honesty of God and the church. So that's serious, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would protect us from Satan when he desires to sift us as wheat and to devour our effective testimony for your son. Protect us, deliver us from his many and diverse temptations. And Lord, may we each be careful to examine ourselves and make corrections so that we need not know your chastening hand. We do want, I'm sure I speak for everybody, we want honesty before you. We want transparency with you. And if we have sinned publicly in such a way to have brought reproach upon your name and your people, give us the honesty to confess and to get right with you. Lord, help us not to be hypocrites ever, ever in the purposeful sense where we not only deceive others but far worse, we lie to the spirit within us and tempt him. Cause us, Father, to constantly remember that you are indeed omniscient. You see everything. We have no secrets from you. And may the reminder of that truth purge us on a daily basis so that we are a holy people who truly reflect to the world that you are a holy God. And we pray in your holy name. Amen.